Hey everyone, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast that's dedicated to discussing films found in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm the warden, Mike Emmel, and I am just full of hope today because I am joined for tonight's episode by a woman who will never let the system keep her down, the amazing, the wonderful Amanda Emmel. Welcome back to the show, Amanda. Hi, everybody. It's good to have you back since uh, it happened one night in Roman Holiday. That was a fun show. Yes, very different from our picks today. Yeah, and I'm very excited. I'm going to go into it later, but I think you're the perfect co-host for tonight's episode. And to all of you out there, welcome and thanks for listening. It is our sincerest hope, sure as the Pacific is blue, that you enjoy tonight's show. If you do, we have lots of other episodes for you to enjoy over at our website at cinemus.com. We spell that C-I-N-E-M-U-S-T-S dot com. You can also find those episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, and for updates on all new content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. Just search for Cinemusts. And while we're dishing out welcomes, I'd like to offer a very special hello to all of our first-time listeners, our fresh fish, if you will. We're very happy you chose to give us a listen today, and especially hope you'll stick around and join our chain gang of film lovers who decide together whether or not the movies we discuss on the show truly are must-see films. And true to the themes in tonight's movies, we have got a system to organize the must-see status of the films that we're talking about. Each movie we talk about gets voted by our listeners into one of three categories to determine their position in the Cinematic Hall of Fame. Uh, Amanda, can you explain what those three categories are and what the criteria for each is? So we have three different categories. The top is Cinemust. This category is for those movies that you love and that you would recommend to every person. Like, you just love it, want to shout it, say, everybody needs to see this movie now. The second category is Cinetrust. This is a step down from Cinemust. This is for those movies that you like, but maybe there's some pieces of it that you're just like, I don't know if this movie is for everybody. So there's kind of a select group of people that you would recommend this movie to. And then the last one is Cinebust. Uh, This movie is not very good. And maybe you would recommend it to no one because it was just awful. And the thing is, is a great movie actually could be voted a Cinebust. Citizen Kane, great movie, but you may not feel that you would recommend it to anybody. Good point. Thank you for explaining the categories, Amanda. Since it is our mission to compile a list of the absolute must-see movies, let's cover the poll results from our last episode to see if any of the films we talked about will get on there today. Two weeks ago, Jeff Crisp and I went off book for a Not 1001 show, and we talked about two video game movies, Wreck-It Ralph and Ready Player One, and our fantastic listeners came out in full force to vote. Thank you, everybody who showed up to vote in those polls. Amanda... How many cigarettes would you bet that either of those films achieve Cinemust status? Three cigarettes. Or a cold drink. Or a cold drink. For what? Who made Cinemust, do you think? Oh, Wreck-It Ralph for sure. Ready Player One could be a Cinetrust. You are dead on. Wreck-It Ralph has been voted a Cinemust, a movie everybody has to see, but Ready Player One, by a margin of one vote, Cinetrust, a movie that is not for everybody, but still worth seeing to a lot of people. And as a side note, Wreck-It Ralph, very impressive. Wreck-It Ralph came very close to having a clean sweep. All but one vote voted it Cinemust. So super high recommendation level for that. And with those polls, along with just clicking on those categories, we do give our listeners the option to tell us why they voted the way they did. And we have a couple of those comments we'd like to read. So, hon, what's the first comment for Wreck-It Ralph? Okay, this listener said about Wreck-It Ralph, 
that ending where he's falling, sacrificing himself for Vanellope and saying, I'll never be good, gets me every freaking time. It is a very beautiful moment. Another listener for Wreck-It Ralph said, you don't even have to like video games to enjoy this one, which is very cool. It does transcend across a couple of different mediums. So Wreck-It Ralph, officially a movie that everybody has to see. Ready Player One, not so lucky, but we had some impassioned voters who still wanted to make their case for it being a worthwhile movie. One listener responded very specifically to the conversation Jeff and I had about it. They say, yes, you are overthinking Ready Player One. Now, it's not perfect, but the only thing it needed was a cameo by Spielberg himself. Totally agree with the Artemis winning the whole thing. That would have made it better. The second one that we have here for Ready Player One. If you want to make a list of pop culture things of the past, this is a good place to get inspired. Fun movie to just sit down and enjoy with some great camera work. Yeah, there is some pretty slick camera work in Ready Player One. So it's a bit of a tough break, but it's not a sin and bust. I think the general consensus is uh, that Ready Player One is not perfect, but still a lot of fun. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Thank you so much to everybody who came out to vote in that poll. It is now unfortunately closed and those results are locked in, but this episode is going to open up another poll and another chance to vote two more movies either onto or off of the definitive list of must-see movies. So before midnight on June 16th, make sure to go to cinemas.com, find the post for this episode, we're on episode 14, and give us your thoughts on the must-see status of the movies we're going to talk about right now. Amanda, you are tonight's co-host, the big boss for tonight's show, so you chose the movies that we're going to be talking about. Uh, What are they, and why did you choose them? Uh, The first one that I picked was Shawshank Redemption. The big leagues. Yes. I picked this movie because, for one, I was afraid the other hosts were going to pick it before I had the chance. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. I am a newcomer to the Shawshank crowd I guess and instantly fell in love with it so I I think it has a lot to say about a lot of different things um, which we'll get into those in a little bit the second one I got a little help from Mike this movie is called Cool Hand Luke we chose it because it's similar to Shawshank Redemption and there are some similarities um, and a lot of big differences that we found out as well so those are the two movies that we picked I'm very excited and I do as a side note think your very recent introduction to Shawshank Redemption actually is what makes you the perfect person to co-host this episode. So I'm very excited to talk about it with you. I can't wait. So let us get into the general impressions section of the show. This is where we're going to break down a basic plot summary for both of those movies, and Amanda and I are going to vote them into one of those three categories we just covered from the last poll. We're going to decide for ourselves if either if both of these movies are cinemusts, cinetrusts, or cinebusts, and we're going to give three reasons for why we voted that way, which is going to form the basis of our spoiler-filled discussion that's going to follow. We'll give you a warning before we jump into that, so even if you haven't seen any of these movies, stick around for a little bit. We're going to tell you what they're about and kind of the key selling points, uh, hopefully to get you interested. So we always go age first, which means Cool Hand Luke from 1967 is first up. So I got a quick plot summary. Uh, Cool Hand Luke stars the gorgeous Paul Newman as Lucas Jackson, an iconoclast and natural-born world shaker who's thrown into a chain gang prison after cutting the heads off of a row of parking meters. While he's in jail, Luke rebels against the system and its rules while becoming something of a messianic figure to his fellow inmates. Uh, Babe, this was your very first time watching Cool Hand Luke, was it not? Uh, It was. All right. Which of those three categories do you think Cool Hand Luke belongs to? 
Cinetrust. Okay, you got to give me three reasons why. Okay, one of the reasons why I voted this into Cinetrust, Paul Newman uh, does give a great performance. He's really fun to watch throughout the movie. We'll get into that a little bit later. The second reason, so I feel like this movie gives a more realistic depiction of prison life. Mm. And the third one is that I felt it was a little too long. Okay, so that's your point that bumps it down from yes. must to trust. Yes. All right, solid. With sin of trust also comes the stigma. You recommend this to some people, but not everybody. What is the group of people you would recommend Cool Hand Luke to? Um, basically, if you're a Paul Newman fan, this is a great movie for you Who to watch. Isn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, or if you're into um, kind of classic movies that not very many people have seen, you like to see kind of those random movies that not a lot of people have seen. This is a great movie for you. Solid. Well, I too vote Cool Hand Luke a Cinetrust, and that is essentially the same group of people I would recommend it to. I think this is a great movie for film buffs or completionists. This is a famous movie on like a lower tier. It's not famous in the same vein as something like Shawshank Redemption, but a lot, a lot of movies have ripped off a lot of things from Cool Hand Luke. It is a pretty interesting movie. It deals with a lot of subtleties. Um, but yeah, there's, there's something there that I just, I don't think I could recommend it to everybody wholesale. And what are your three reasons? Uh, they're very similar to yours. Number one, my first reason, uh, this is the role that solidifies Paul Newman as a Hollywood icon. I think this is the best movie he carries basically by himself. I like him more in other movies, but in those movies like The Hustler and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he has an amazing co-star, so they kind of carry it together. Uh, cool Hand Luke is totally the Paul Newman show, and I'd say it lives or dies by his performance, but he's so great, it lives by his performance. Uh, my second reason is that this this movie really gets at the existential crisis we as humans face when we're fighting authority. I can't really go too much into that without going into spoilers, but it is a pretty complex look at just rebellion against institutions and things like that. And my third reason, the reason that kind of bumps it down from cinemas to cinetrust, is I think that its ambition often exceeds its ability to tie everything together. It does run on a little much. Some of the scenes seem a little episodic and they're entertaining, but don't really contribute to kind of the masterpiece level I think some people would see it as. So that's what we think. We're, we're pretty positive on Cool Hand Luke, but not over the moon cinemas. Uh, how about the Shawshank Redemption, babe? What is the Shawshank Redemption about? Well, I feel like I'm kind of beating a dead horse because I would say most um, of you guys have probably seen Shawshank Redemption. So you don't need to listen to this if you don't want to. But this is a story of a banker named Andy, played by Tim Robbins, um, who gets two life sentences in prison for killing his wife and her lover, which he claims he didn't do. It's his story of making the most of his time in prison, which involves making a lifelong friendship with Red, played by Morgan Freeman, improving the prison's library, and giving hope to the other inmates while struggling with the criminal justice system. It's super awesome. Can't wait to talk about it even more. How would you vote this movie, Mike? Total cinemast. Everybody should see The Shawshank Redemption. Almost everybody already has. Yeah. <laughs> I'm over the moon about the movie. It's difficult to whittle down what makes it so great to just three reasons, but the three that I chose are one, I think this is one of cinema's greatest friendships, or if you'll allow me to be a little snarky, uh, one of the cinema's greatest bromances. 
Uh, secondly, I think this is the best prison movie ever made. Pretty plain and simple. There's a lot of good entries, but I think Shawshank beats them all. And thirdly, I think this is a movie that really just gives you the courage to hold on and keep going. It's a movie about hope, and I think that is something that it instills in everybody who loves it. And I think that's a big reason why everybody loves it. Yeah, I agree with that. How about you, babe? How you vote it? Cinemust. Easy. My number one reason is that throughout the entire movie, it um, evokes genuine emotions from the viewers. When there's sadness or depression or happiness in the movie, I, I felt that as a viewer. So it was very good at being an empathy machine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the second reason is that it challenges your perception of morality. I think it has a lot to say about morality. It's a lot of fun to talk about after you've seen the movie. Yeah. Interesting perspective for a movie that is sometimes lambasted for being overly sentimental. Yeah. Third reason? Um, the social issues it talks about are still relevant today. And um, just as a little reference, this movie was made in 1994. It's now 2018. So not that tons of time have passed since then, but that movie is set in something in the 40s, late 40s. So anyways, a lot of the social issues it talks about, I believe, are still relevant today. So the two of us are in agreement for each movie. Not surprising. I do whatever Amanda tells me to. But maybe we're totally off base. Maybe Shawshank Redemption is overrated. Maybe Cool Hand Luke is the best movie ever made. The good news is, is we are just two votes out there that can easily be outmatched. So whether you agree or disagree, make sure to go over to the episode 14 post at cinemas.com and cast your vote for the must-see status of both of these movies. Uh, like I said, you do have until midnight on June 16th. So if you need a little time to go back, revisit them, or see one of them for the first time, go check them out. I think at the very least, they're both worth watching. And we cannot wait to hear how you all vote for them and what your general reactions to them are. So from here, we are going to go pretty full steam into spoilers for each movie to back up the stuff we just said about them. So if you haven't seen either of the movies, don't want them spoiled for you, check out now and come back. Uh, for everybody else, let's proceed and let's start talking about Cool Hand Luke. I know I'm a pretty evil fella. Kill people in the war. And I got drunk and chewed up municipal property and the like. I know I got no call to ask for much, but even so, you gotta admit you ain't dealt me no cards in a long time. It's beginning to look like you got things fixed so I can't never win out. Inside, outside, all them rules and regulations and bosses. You made me like I am. I just, where am I supposed to fit in? Oh, man, I gotta tell you, I started out pretty strong and fast. But it's beginning to get to me. All right, Cool Hand Luke. So to me, Cool Hand Luke is the type of movie we created Cinetrust for. It's the kind of movie that you watch, you can feel its legacy. You you want to love it so much, but there are just a couple things about it that keep you at arm's length. And and we'll get to those, but I'd really like to talk about what works about it first, because I do think a lot about Cool Hand Luke does work. There's like just a couple of things that turned me off from Cinemust. Yes. Uh, and one of those awesome things we both agreed about is Paul Newman, who carries the show. So your first point was point blank. Paul Newman gives a good performance. What do you like about Paul Newman's performance? There are a lot of scenes in this movie where you, you feel what Paul Newman is portraying. So a very classic scene is the 50 egg challenge. Oh, it's so good. I would probably say this was my favorite part of the movie. Mine too. 
Um, Which is crazy, right? Yeah. This is a, this is a like, prison movie, and the best scene has almost nothing to do with prison. It's true. Um, but so he is challenged to eating eggs, and he says, "Oh yeah, I can eat fifty eggs in an hour." And everybody and drag, dragline, yeah, dragline says, "Why fifty? Why not thirty six? And I mean, Paul Newman's response is kind of just like. Well, why not 50? Like <laughs> <laughs> It was a nice round number. He yeah. Says. Yeah. Anyways, as he goes through this hour and he's eating 50 boiled eggs, you can tell that he is miserable <laughs> trying to eat all of these eggs. But you just you just feel what he's feeling and what he's portraying. And that's just one example of him really hitting um, a home run with his performance. To me, that scene gets at everything the character is about, that he he fights just because he is not he's not a character on a noble crusade to tear down the institution. He's kind of just a rebel rouser. Yep. And so, yeah, he picks 50 arbitrarily and they are doing it just so that they can clean out the rest of the camp on all their money. They kind of hustle him. And it's and it's one of those great scenes because every time that Luke is going to rebel against the system, he always does it with a smile on his face. Yes, his classic smile. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I love his performance is when you look at all the stars from this era, this was when a lot of these legends were coming into fame. This is Brando was a gigantic deal. You had James Dean. And I don't think any of those guys could have pulled this off because when when Paul Newman as Luke fights against the system, he doesn't seem tortured and bitter, even though there are cases where the character is. But, you know, if Brando was doing it, it just would have been so heavy and he could not sell those tiny little moments of victory. Brando could not have sold the egg eating contest being this like uplifting experience that was kind of like, you make the best out of a crappy situation. Right. And then Newman, I also think, really sells the the heavy dramatic moments. I think he nails that speech in the end where he's just alone in the barnyard kind of sizing up his existence to God saying, "Why did you make me this way if everything's always rigged against me?" A similar scene is in the about midpoint of the movie um when they're out working and um it starts raining and thundering and um they get to leave early, but Luke stands in the rain for a minute and Everybody's like, are you crazy? Like, you're going to get hit by lightning. But he's just standing in the rain and he says, love me, hate me, kill me, but just let me know it. And he's talking to God, just trying to say, like, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, like, show me a sign type of a right, thing. Trying and, to get some direction. Right. And that's, you know, I mentioned that a lot of movies have, have taken stuff from Cool Hand Luke. That reminds me of a scene in Last Temptation of Christ, uh, Willem Dafoe, as Jesus does the same thing, he has a speech where he's like, I'm going to sit in this circle and you're going to talk to me. You can let me die and that's fine, but we're going to talk. And so I thought it was really cool to see those two sync up. That's I really liked that scene as well. It was just really short, really simple. It wasn't like a big capital A acting moment, but it got at what I felt was the movie's driving theme about kind of just the existential crisis of being institutionalized uh because this is also the late 60s so in the united states we're dealing a lot with vietnam we are very countercultural. we're a couple of years away from woodstock so the free love movement is getting into full swing we do not trust government institutions and so luke kind of as he does in the movie he kind of becomes like this figure of 
rebellion and not just following the rules, but I like that the movie is a little more complicated about it than that because it both celebrates him for being the guy who will fight against the system for the rest of us, but also shows the futility of it as well as the personal toll that it takes. It's really sad to see Paul Newman cry. It that, is. That scene where they're making him redig the ditch and then fill it back in. Which he, is basically his grave. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what it looks like. Shaped like a grave. Yeah. And he just wraps himself around the legs and just cries, don't beat me anymore. My mind's right. I'll do what I want. Yeah. Uh, that that scene was really hard to watch because it's Paul Newman. He's the man. You can't break him. And uh, they totally do. Yeah. I think you even see a little bit of that um, when he finds out that his mother's passed away. Sure. Basically, the the bosses, they send him to the box, which is basically solitary confinement, for the sole reason of that his mother passed away. Like, he didn't do anything wrong. They were just like, your mom passed away, so we're going to send you there because we we think you might run away. Yeah, we don't want you to run. Yeah. Like, what the heck? Yeah. Punishment in this movie is always so extreme to me. And I know it's extreme to make a point, but yeah, he he gets two years in this prison because he cut the head off of a, a row of parking meters, which is destruction of property, but it's also like, is hard labor like really the answer to that? Uh, and then yeah, he gets punished for something he didn't even have control over or do. They just have to exercise their control over him at every turn. And that's you know, really what the entire second half of the movie is about is just how far the guards will go to keep him under their thumb. Yeah. So I don't feel like they're that bad the first half of the movie. No, I don't. And I feel like that leads into my second point is that uh, this is a more realistic depiction of prison life. So Luke, uh, like you mentioned, he is imprisoned for destruction of, of property for Ma- two malicious years. Malicious destruction oh, yeah. of property. Maliciously. The difference one word makes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so he was given a sentence for two years. I mean, it's still two years in prison and it's still two years of being under the hot sun, cutting weeds off of the the side of the road. How good is this movie at showing how miserable that is? Yeah. No, think, it's awesome. I think the entire goal of this movie is to demystify manual labor. Yes. So it's like, take take all of the accomplishment and stuff you get out of it. We'll take that out. We'll leave all the sweatiness and the heat and the snakes and everything. And that's cool hand, Luke. Right. And I just, you can tell that the punishments and even some of the participation of the bosses or car, they call him the floor walker, especially him in, like, he's totally participating in the 58 challenge. And I think that just shows that the guards and um, the bosses can be easily persuaded by entertainment in this situation of the 58 challenge or bribery or anything like that. And not that I've been in prison myself, but I feel like that is pretty true. And there's, so after Arletta dies and Luke goes to the box, the guard that's there is locking him up and he's saying he's only doing this because it's his job. Right. And you can tell that that, like, he feels bad that Luke's mother just passed away and they're locking him up for it. Like, he didn't do anything wrong. And you can tell that that boss feels guilt for just locking this man up for no reason, basically, in the box. And I love Luke's response. And all he says is, calling it your job, don't make it right. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is just the perfect thing to say in that moment that he's saying, like, even though I'm here in jail, like, 
you don't have to put me here and just saying that it's your job doesn't mean that you can justify it, you know? Right. Goes goes along with that famous quote that for evil to succeed, good people just have to do nothing. Exactly. The, mo- the movie's yep. calling out, like, use, use your sense of morality and justice and uh, pointing out that the criminal justice system sometimes doesn't do that. It becomes more about routine and... Uh, basically a power play positions positions are a big part of cool hand luke because you have the captain who has to be the captain you have boss godfrey who is the man with the shiny sunglasses below him you've got all the other bosses but even the inmates like dragline makes it a point to be the chief inmate right yeah Uh, by being bigger tougher he's the guy that dishes out the names that they are known by you don't have a name until dragline gives you one he's always the first one out and the first one in so it complicates that that line between who who's a criminal and who's not because even within like the the bosses enjoy taking part in all the shenanigans just as much as everybody i don't blame them i want to see a guy eat 50 eggs if he says that he could like i'd get in on that action yep um so yeah it's kind of showing the arbitrary nature of this this prison system it's interesting because even in shawshank redemption red calls prison uh just it's just a routine that you get used to and um it's interesting to me that i think it shows that luke struggles in prison a lot because whenever he's like he's given a challenge or something or he's just like we can do this he always says it will just be something to do like Mm -hmm. to me that rings that he doesn't feel like prison is just a routine for him it's just like i'm gonna do whatever i want to do and so he doesn't necessarily i mean obviously he's required to sync up to the routine of going out and working every day and coming back and whatever but to him pieces of imprisonment is just like oh it's something to do Again, I'd give the movie credit because it makes that idea complex because Luke is a rebellious character who doesn't want to escape until fairly late in the movie. And when he doesn't have that much time left in jail. Yeah. Like when he, when he's almost served his whole sentence and could yes. just be let out anyways is yes. when he decides to make a run for it, but I it it does go on a little long. I understand the point they're trying to make, but that first escape Luke makes where he's running back and forth across fences to confuse the dogs. That's economic to show, okay, he's doing this so that the dogs will lose his scent. But I get the feeling the way that that montage is put together by how long it goes on and how he's kind of running in circles that, you know, escape isn't really the goal Luke has there. He kind of just wants to see how long he can stay out there. (laughs) And, and even after he gets away, he sends the fellas in the prison, this picture of him with these two models to show how, hey, it's great out here. And he's eventually recaptured. He comes back in and he admits that the whole thing was phony. He had a doctor descend to them so that they would get a kick out of it. And he, this is another one of those heavy moments, I think, that Paul Newman sells is he, he cries out, like, stop leeching off of me. And he talks about, like, it wasn't any better out there. I got a job with this guy. He was just as bad as the warden. I sassed off once and he turned me in. So the life inside the fence is no better than the life outside of it for him because he has no he has no direction in life he just does what he feels like and that's another thing i'd give the movie credit for trying to tackle this idea about rebelling against authority is i think it causes you to ask what the reason is to rebel because authority is just such an ugly word thanks in part to this era and movies like cool hand luke that we kind of just fight against it just cuz 
And I'm certainly guilty of doing that. You don't really think out the issues. You just kind of fight because it's like, oh, the government or, you know, whomever. Like, I'm just going to fight them just because. And I think Cool Hand Luke with its first hour, which is honestly probably a little more enjoyable to me, is not about rebellion at all. It's kind of just about make the most out of what you got. Okay, I do just have to say. In that first hour, there is probably the worst scene of the whole movie. Which one? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, the car wash? The car wash. The car wash is kind of great, though. Oh, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's so over the top. Oh, my gosh. Like, if there's any movie that has an over-the-top objectifying a woman, that is the scene to show. And, I mean, that's its purpose, but it's so... I yeah that's that's one of the scenes that I think could be like severely cut down because they just keep ramping up the ridiculous nature to which this woman will torment these convicts because first she's just oh, I'm just washing my car in a short dress and you're like oh, okay I get it but then she's like uh wringing out the sponge on her dress and then she's like <laughs> leaning over and eventually she's just like smashing her boobs up against the window yeah that <laughs> could have cut out a good like three minutes earlier and we still would have got the message <laughs> yeah but i do think that scene shows how awful prison is just because like these these men haven't seen a woman right in how long so to them it's just like oh my gosh like i get it i get yeah, why it would be yeah. torturous but oh my goodness she yeah. was she was swinging for the fences it's a little over the top <laughs> that's maybe an early example to me of the, the ambition exceeding like their ability to pull it all together you get the message but it's it's maybe a little extreme this movie's over two hours and it feels like a good 20 minutes could be cut out and get the same messages across because another another thing about it is similar to Shawshank Redemption I think this is a movie that's trying to have this very profound friendship between Luke and Dragline and I love how it starts I love that that very same car washing incident leads to Luke telling Dragline, like, will you stop talking about it? It's doing nobody any good, which makes Drag angry. And he's, they have to box on Saturdays because that's how you handle all your disputes. And that's a good scene, too, that Luke will win the argument by losing the fight, that he will just refuse to, to stay down. Up. Yeah. It's a really good scene. And I like, I like that that is the, the blossoming of their friendship, that Drag comes to respect him because he knows he can't keep him under his thumb. But... From there, I don't feel like their friendship is entirely satisfying. No. Because even in the in the very end, Luke takes off in a truck and last minute, Drag decides to jump on board. And so it's going to be these two buds going on, taking on the world. And that's what Dragline thinks is going to happen. And then the next scene is Luke telling him like, oh, I'm tired. You know, we should split up. You, I've, I'm done shaking the world. You can go do that. And then, and then the next thing is just drag walking in like, oh, they caught us. Uh, we'll just go back. Yeah. Which shortly after Luke gets shot. Yeah. I think that does show that he's maybe not given up, but kind of given up. So after Dragline finds Luke in the chapel, this is after Luke's, is that his third attempt? It is. So yeah, this is Luke's third attempt to escape. He's been caught every other time. And here he is getting caught again. And he gets shot. So this is the scene where he dies. But to me, that scene is not very satisfying because it's just he gets shot. Like, there's nothing more to it, for for me, at least. I kind of like it 
just because it it's that trademark kind of 60s and 70s pessimism that well we have this character that is a rebel and a hero but uh the movie still succumbs to the reality that people like that do not get away in the real world in real life yeah they get hurt and nobody really cares about healing them because that's luke's not dead at that point but when they load him in the back of the truck they said oh we'll call ahead the emergency clinic and the captain says like i'm gonna take him to the prison hospital and they say that's an hour away he's never gonna make it and the captain just says like well he's our responsibility so you know he's you know by the time he gets back to camp he's not gonna make it he's gonna die in the backseat of that car yeah which uh to your point is is probably a more realistic depiction of how people in this situation would be treated yes for sure and i think that's honestly how we felt back then because you see there there are a lot of movies in a thousand and one movies you must see before you die with this similar kind of theme like we really easily could have paired this up with one flew over the cuckoo's nest which has a very similar story and ending and just kind of worldview so to me i think that's maybe one thing that people would actually say makes cool hand luke great is that it's kind of a tall tale it's about this big figure of cool hand luke but it ends in tragedy because that was how the world was working. And just to emphasize this again, like he only was in prison for two years or that's what his sentence was. But he can't take the being confined and having to do these certain things every day. He doesn't like the rules. Right. You know, the rules get very extreme. The sto- eventually the story comes to a point where they're making up rules so he can't fulfill them. The grave digging ditch is the prime example. Uh, they load up his plate with extra food and say he can't leave until it's done. And that's a nice moment where the inmates kind of each take a spoonful to help him out. Some good Jesus imagery there. But the rules aren't that crazy up front. Like his no, his punishment does exceed his crime. But like we said, he, he had a couple months to go and he could have been out. And instead, he chooses to run. And every time you run, you get years added. You get an extra set of chains. Yeah. but But in a way... You know, I feel like maybe parents would appreciate this movie. The more you try to set limitations, the more underlings will try to break them just because they can. But again, like, I really like this movie because I love when uh, when Luke does break and he says, don't beat me anymore. And then he escapes again after that. And Dragline says, oh, you had him fooled. And Luke admits, you you can't fake something like that. They they really did break me. I've just right. I've just bounced back, but I'm still very tired of fighting i would really love it if somebody else could be the guy who has to fight the system so that i can latch onto them the scene where so luke escapes the dogs are chasing him trying to figure out where he's at and one of the dogs blue um they load him up in the car because he's run himself to death and i forget who carries him out but dog boy yeah he's just holding this dog who's run himself to death and it just breaks your heart because you're just like oh they're that poor animal <laughs> and that's 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 good foreshadowing for what's yeah. going to happen to luke he's just gonna run run, himself. run until he dies right but to me that's also like a miscalculation of the movie because that follows this big 10 minute montage where luke is running away and i feel that the movie is trying to get you to be invested in is luke gonna get away or not you should want him to succeed and as soon as they bring the dog out of the trunk it's just instantly so sad. You feel yeah. worse for that dog than you do for any yep. human character in the movie. And then all of a sudden you think Luke is kind of a dick because he ran away for no reason. And now this cute little dog is dead. Yeah. 
with my point that this movie is a little bit too long, I feel like that mostly comes out when, like, how many times do we have to see Luke running away from the prison, you know? Right. Each of those scenes feels like it's like 10 minutes long of him just running away and him running away. And, oh, look, here he is running away again. Like, to me, that it's just way over the top. Like, give it like a minute. Like, yep, he ran away. And then, you know, like. Right. And they're, they're fun enough episodes. Like the second one where he's he's at the old farm with the black family. Sure. And he's, tell, he's telling the kids like, hey, get these spices. You'll see something really funny. The dogs will go crazy when they come through here. But, and they do. Yeah. To me. To me, it just gets a little exhausting because, like I said, you know this is all futile, that he's running just to run, essentially, and you know he's going to be back because you can already sense that the movie is going to have him run three times. So when he's running in the second one, you're not invested on, like, is he going to get away this time? You're just waiting for them to catch him again. I find it interesting that in a a prison movie, the breakout is usually, like, the high point um, but here it is kind of where the movie started to lose both of our interests. We were, we were a lot more on board for like the egg eating and the boxing and yes. playing the song for his mom on the banjo. Like all that stuff felt a little more true to the human emotion in the story. And then the running was just like, oh, Luke's going to go run. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The Cinetrusts, I, I always feel so bad because I, I want to be positive And then there's always like, a couple of little things that keep me from just loving it. But this movie is loaded with those things within like the same scene sometimes. Um, for me, a big one is when his mom, Arletta, is yeah. her name, mm-hmm. when she comes to visit him. It's a good scene. It's a good acting it scene. It's giving us backstory, but it is very long and, and drawn kind out. And unnecessary, I feel like, except for the fact that you meet Arletta and then later she passes away. But when she we- talks about like her giving all the stuff to her, his brother like to me that's pointless it's it's just a scene that's tinged with regret but it kind of doubles down like three different times of just like oh the mistakes we've made yeah because you can sense the distance between them and that they're both kind of trying to say something that neither of them has the ability to actually vocalize right so i think that's that maybe is purposefully put together to be long and drawn out so that you can see they really want they really want to say something. They need like that extra bit of time, but it just comes and goes and then she's out of his life and he knows that's the last time he's ever going to see his mother. Right. I think we need that scene for basically his escapes to work for the scene right. where he's thrown in the box because you need to know he kind of cares about her. But at the same point, I don't know how much he really cares. Well, it's it's kind of an interesting, maybe foreshadowing thing that Arletta says to him. While they're chatting, he she makes the comment. She's like, I would ask you what I what you're going to do when you're out, but I'll be dead by then. And I wonder if that's kind of just like them saying, like, he's not going to do anything after he's out because he's going to die, you know. Mm. And so she like doesn't even give him the opportunity to have a dream and a hope to be like, after I'm out of here, I'm going to go and do this one thing that I really wanted to do. Like he doesn't have any ambition for what he's going to do after he gets out. And I wonder if that leads him to just try and escape because he's like, I have nothing to live for. So he doesn't want to live for anything. Maybe I'm totally off base. Um, This scene could be genius and just leave us a lot of subtleties for a lot of possibilities to play out. Maybe, maybe he was going to play by the rules so that he could get out and show his mom what he was going to do. And then when she dies, that takes the opportunity away from him because he doesn't he doesn't have any plans of escaping 
until that point. It's and true. It's, we don't know exactly how long he's got left, but he's most of the way through his sentence at that point. So he hasn't really done anything to piss off the bosses yet. Right. I feel like it's a movie that maybe with a couple more years, a couple more viewings, I can really come to appreciate it. I do appreciate the subtleties in it, the the complexity, kind of the cynicism, but it does not come together for me in a way that, like, movies from this year with, like, a similar pessimistic worldview, so things like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, play a lot better to me and still portray this aimlessness of walking through life, of not knowing what your future holds, of kind of just being a rebel to rebel for the sake of it. Yeah. Cool Hand Luke, you know, is is lost in a great year for movies, and I think it's good, but it does get overshadowed. Yeah, I agree. But there are some great moments in it as well. One we didn't really talk about a lot was the scene where they're tarring the road and oh yeah, Luke just says like, oh, let's hurry... I mean, he doesn't say this like, let's hurry and get it done so we can be done for the day. But that's what ends up happening. So it's just this great moment of like the whole chain game coming together to hurry and finish what they're supposed to do. And then they have extra time in the day to just relax. I like that scene because even if Luke doesn't really have a game plan or a reason for doing it, it does serve a goal. It does bring them together. It gets it basically gets Luke his status as a legend among them. And it's really fun to see the guards kind of perplexed because they're used to guys trying to escape, trying to fight them. They know how to deal with that, but they have no idea what to do when the gang just did what they asked them to do (laughs) faster than they wanted it to. It's it's really a good scene. Yeah, and there's even one of the bosses just like, pick it up, like, we want to see speed. And so Luke just says, like, we'll give them what they want to see, and that's what what happens. And they get to go home while there's still daylight. Yeah, it's really fun. I think we'll talk about this with Shawshank, but prison movies, kind of depend on those moments of small victory and that is by far the best one because it does seem for something like the egg eating scene is great the boxing thing is great but those are kind of victories just for luke the tarring the road scene is a victory for everybody it kind of gives the whole gang hope yeah anything about cool hand luke you want to discuss more i mean if you're looking for an older flick to watch one night i would maybe recommend this to you um it is kind of fun to watch just be prepared for it to go on a little bit too long. Just a tiny Just, bit. But yeah. it's, it's good. Like the, the 60s are good because we've already seen developments in like widescreen. It's in color. I feel like it's a lot more accessible than, you know, black and white movies sure. seem to be a, a tough fence for some people. But yeah, for, for sure, if you're a film buff, if you've heard about Cool Hand Luke, never seen it, I think it's totally worth watching at least once. Well, that's Cool Hand Luke. Should we shift ourselves back 20 years in the past and check in at Shawshank? Yes, let's do it. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? I do believe you're talking out of your ass. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, that's exactly what they take. Part it counts anyway. Okay, Shawshank Redemption, 
possibly the most beloved movie of all time. Really, really held in high esteem for a lot of people. And according to IMDb, uh, it is the absolute greatest movie of all time. So I've mentioned a couple times in this episode that I feel you are the perfect co-host for this episode. And the reason I feel that is because you didn't know any of that before we sat down and watched this a couple of months ago. No, so my only like introduction or knowledge of Shawshank is that you that you liked it, that you thought it was a good movie. That was it. Yep. And then you wound up loving it. Yes. Um so I got really excited when you said you wanted to do the podcast on it because something that comes with the territory of talking about all the classic movies as we're locked into doing is we're talking about the movie itself, but you also have to kind of deal with the legacy and the reputation. Sure, yeah. Uh, and Shawshank most definitely has that. But because you were not really privy to any of that stuff, you didn't know just on how widespread a scale people just gush over this movie and still loved it. To me, that said that you had just a very genuine reaction to it. And you loved it, not because you felt like you had to, but because you thought it was a great movie. So. That's why I got really excited to have you on the show. So I'd kind of like to just tap into your brain. What about the Shawshank Redemption just instantly hooked you? And I, it feels like this might be one of your new all-time favorite movies. Yeah, I would probably put this in my top five favorite movies of all time for a lot of different reasons. I mean, one of my reasons why I put, uh, voted it a cinemust is that it it really, truly evokes genuine emotions, which I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, movies are meant to entertain, but I love it when there's like messages in the movie as well. And this one is just loaded with a lot of different things that give people a moral lesson in life, kind of. Mm -hmm. And another reason why I like this movie is because I wasn't expecting to like it. Like, I don't really know what I was expecting when I went in watching this for the first time, which, like Mike mentioned, was only a couple months ago. I just kind of went in being like, I'm curious about this movie because y you always talk about how good it is. And so I think part of the reason why I love it so much is because I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I do. So what about it surprised you? What are what are like those messages that most speak to you? Oh, boy, there are so many. Um, My favorite like message in this movie is just that Andy never gives up and he is continually trying to improve his life despite the cards he's been given in his situation. I just love that, that I, that he's given a rough set of cards. I guess I'll just go ahead and say this since we're in the spoilers, that he is innocent for. Mm -hmm. So Andy's given this two-life sentence imprisonment. They thought that he killed his wife and, and his wife's lover. And he, at the beginning, admits, no, I didn't do it. Like, and one of my favorite lines is Andy just says, before he goes to jail, he says, since I'm innocent, I feel it's very inconvenient they never found the gun. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that just shows you, that's like the first little piece of Andy that we get to see that he's like this positive um, outlook. And he's kind of a quiet guy. Like he doesn't. Yeah, he's he's kind of disturbing in that court scene just like all the the lawyer and the judge says like he's a little too composed and calm for somebody accused of doing what he is accused of doing yeah but i feel like we get to see a little bit and at that moment when he says that we don't know that he's innocent yet we don't know that he's innocent until probably it's probably about halfway through the movie when tommy comes in but um i just love that andy 
makes the most of his imprisonment while he's there. I think that is probably the biggest contributor to how beloved this movie is. Um, I've seen a lot of interviews this week and I've read some things about it. And Frank Darabont, the director, Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, like so many people who are associated with this movie have all these stories of people who grab them on the streets or write to them and just tell them how much this movie meant to them, that this movie got them through a horrible relationship or saved them from killing themselves. Like it was a movie that had strong power because of that message that you're talking about that similar to how in Cool Hand Luke, the the other inmates need Luke to be the guy who just does not give up no matter what. I, I feel that that is the role that the Shawshank Redemption plays in the lives of everyone who's seen it, that we need the story of Andy to show us like things get awful, things get very rough. We need a figure who will persevere through it all to give us the hope that we can too. And I like that. I think the movie is lambasted a lot because, or not a lot, like, honestly, more people love this movie than don't. But it, it has a reputation of being overly sentimental, purposefully so. Frank Darabont is a gigantic fan of Frank Capra, so Shawshank Redemption is something of a modern retelling of It's a Wonderful Life. It's the, the same kind of idea that life is worth living and you hold on to the small victories you can because they make all the difference. I don't think that's such a bad thing. I think it's it's pretty great, actually, that we have this kind of... Despite Red's objections, I think Shawshank Redemption is a fairy tale. Um, and fairy tales come with a lot of scary stuff. And they also come with some very genuinely happy stuff. And I think both the the small victories and the happy ending are very well balanced with this movie showing just how awful this experience is for everybody concerned. Let's talk about some of these genuinely happy moments in a movie that's set in a setting that should not make you happy. Um, one of my favorites is um, it's near the beginning after um, Andy comes in. He's one of the fresh fish. Is that what? Is yeah. that fresh, fresh fish, fish here? Okay. Fresh <laughs> fish. It's the first meal that we get to see Andy in. So he's in the cafeteria and he sits next to what becomes his group in uh, Shawshank. And one of my favorite characters is there, and we, this is, I think it's the first time we get to see Brooks, and he's the sweetest old man ever. James Whitmore is the best. Yes. Um, anyway, so we're sitting down to this mill, and Andy just sets his tray down, and he looks down at his mill, and there's like a maggot in his food. Like, disgusting, gross, and there's a Typical moment. prison yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. But Brooks gets so excited and he like turns to Andy. He's like, are you going to eat that? And my first reaction was like, he's going to eat that worm. Like, sure. like Brooks, what that's, are you thinking? That's <laughs> what we're set up to believe. Like, oh, prison sucks. You get used to it. Yeah. But this wonderful moment of Andy handing Brooks this little worm. <laughs> and he, Brooks has this little bird in his pocket. And he feeds this bird this worm. Like, to me, that is just one of the most heartwarming. Little yeah, little Jake. Um, it's just one of the most heartwarming moments in this movie just because I think it also shows not not only is Andy working hard. I mean, at this point, Andy's not making the most of his. I think he's still adjusting to prison life. Sure. It's his second day. Right. But you see that Brooks has made the most of. I mean, he's been in there longer than anybody in the prison. And that he's doing what he can to make his life better there. And I just love that moment. 
That's one of my favorite moments in this movie. It is it is a very cute moment, but that does have a double-edged meaning to it because uh, the movie very blatantly is about this concept of being institutionalized and that getting to the point that Brooks does is a very bad thing. You get accustomed to the walls. You come to depend on them. Because Brooks is very sweet on the inside, it's great to see him, but we get a very depressing little montage, ironically enough, when we should be happy when Brooks gets released after, what, 50 plus years of imprisonment? Something like that, yeah. He gets out, but Shawshank has just sucked every fiber of his being out of him. He has come to depend on being in prison, he's an important person in there, on the outside he's just worn out, ill-prepared, because he even mentions in that nice little touch that he saw one automobile when he was a kid once. Yeah. And now he's released in this world where they're everywhere and everything moves so fast and he's trying to keep up as a checkout guy. And it's too much for him. Brooks cannot handle all the fuss. He contemplates breaking his parole, so they'll throw him back in, but he actually winds up killing himself. And so right before we find out what happens to Brooks, he so he tells the boys in the prison that uh, so he writes them a letter and he uses the phrase, I've decided not to stay. And that phrase makes me cry. Mm-hmm. It just is like, oh, my gosh, like this is a man who's lived in prison for the majority of his life. We don't I don't even think we know why he's in prison. Yeah, the the movie does play a little game because we sympathize with all the inmates but most of them are lifelong convicts which means most of those guys are probably in there for murder yes so obviously he's done something that he does need to pay for his consequences for like he needs to um redeem himself (laughs) sure yes but just that moment of seeing brooks scratch his his little message on the wall, Brooks was here and then hang himself is just so heartbreaking Mm. because you're just like, he, he spent his whole life in prison and that's all his life was, was being in prison and he felt important there and then to get released and then he can't handle life outside of the prison. So he kills himself. This is one of the reasons I, I really love Shawshank. And one of the reasons I totally understand why it would be one of the most beloved movies of all time is It's a great prison movie. It works very well on the surface level of just this plot about convicts in there for decades. But it's also one of these movies that on the on the deeper level, if someone can ask you or if somebody asked you, hey, what's that movie about? You could very easily just say life. It's about, you know, prison becomes a metaphor for any kind of wall that is put up around you. So I think everybody feels trapped at one point or another, a job, a bad relationship, even things that aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes the pressure just mounts up and you feel trapped. So the story of Red and Andy and all their buds stands in for whatever walls are put up around you at the time. And this concept of institutionalization applies just as easily to fear of change in anything. Sure. I think one of the best scenes that shows this, that it feels like sometimes these stone walls are just put up around us and we don't know what to do is when Andy gets... So at this point, he's working kind of as an office worker in the prison. So he's given a special job and he helps to do a lot of the paperwork. And later we find out that he's helping launder money. But side note here, so he's in the office and one of the officers says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to the restroom or whatever he says. 
he locks the guard into the bathroom, so he's free to do whatever he wants. And Andy knows he's going to get into trouble for what he does, but he does it. So he puts on this record and he blasts it throughout the whole entire jail. And it's this Italian song of these two women singing. And um, afterwards, that act gives... How long is he in the hole? I think he's in the hole for a, a week or two. Yeah. So he, he... Because of this, he goes to the hole. And then afterwards, he comes out and Red asks him why he does... Why he did that. He's like, you knew you were going to get in trouble for this. Why did you do this? And basically just says, music helps you uh, to forget that there are places that are not made of stone. So it basically says, there's a piece of me that the these stone walls cannot take and that music helps give him hope. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's so beautiful. It totally is. And on a higher level, I think the movie says that about a lot of art. Um, that specific incident uses music to illustrate it. But the movie, I think, makes a very strong case that movies have the same power, both by virtue of the fact that the thing that Andy eventually escapes into are posters of these women starlets from movies, but also even uh, in the scene after he has asked for the first Rita Hayworth poster and is cornered by the sisters in the projection booth, he uses a film reel to beat up on one of them, which I think is a, a pretty obvious symbol that we use movies to fight off reality, that we mm-hmm. will use them to deal with the harsh things that come for us. So it really, it really is, as much as you could accuse it of just being a crowd pleaser, it's a movie with a lot of different ideas on its mind, and all of them are incredibly important. And another one that I love is just, it's a movie about the power of friendship. That was one of my first mm-hmm. points, is I think the friendship between Andy and Red is one of the great bromances in all movies. And it's kind of funny, because when I sat down to think why, it almost became difficult to peg like the exact scene that sells me. Because their big scene is right before Andy's escape. It's the the long, drawn-out, get-busy-living or get-busy-dying conversation. Sure. Which I like a lot, but to me is the most melodramatic point in the movie. I'm not always on board with the acting decisions that Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman make. But it's a very beautifully written scene. So I was trying to find, like, where's the point in that scene where I'm sold on their friendship? And I realized that it's not any one scene. It's that this movie is allowed to play out over decades, over like 20 years. And what struck me was not that they had this one beautiful moment together, even though they do. I love their first meeting where Red gets to size him up when he's asking for the rock hammer and he kind of lets down his preconceived notions that Andy is just a bureaucrat, has a silver spoon in his mouth or up his ass as Red would describe him as. But I like that... You know, they're kind of just buds. I I always get the feeling that Andy could never really be friends with anybody but Red because Red respects like his eccentricities and that that coat around him that he describes. It seems like it shields him from this place. It doesn't seem like Andy could be best buds with somebody like Hayward or Brooks or the other guys he's perfectly compatible with. To me, it's almost like that that teen that high school movie dynamic of like the cool kid that kind of like brings the awkward nerdy kid into the group and they become like best friends yeah kind of needs that in i love that dynamic they have that they're they're kind of the only two sounding points where they can talk about 
the deep philosophical things because everybody else is always obsessed with. Why didn't you just play Hank Williams? Or if you're going to ask for a library, why don't you ask for a pool table instead? I actually think that there's a pretty good starting point for Andy's relationship with Red, but also with some of the other guys that he kind of hangs with in the gel. And that's the moment when there's a group of 10, I believe, inmates that get to go tar the roof. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why so many of their group gets to go is because Red uses cigarettes or something like that, bribes one of um, the guards to pick his group's names. But as the scene is playing out, so all the guys are up there tarring the roof and Hadley, which is, he's the crazy officer who is evil. Um, Straight up. So yeah. Like violent for real. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Hadley is talking to the other officers about how, um, I believe it was his brother that passed away or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the rich oil tycoon brother. Yeah. And he's saying that he's getting $35,000 and how unlucky is that? And all of these inmates are just like scoffing, just like, oh yeah, how unlucky is getting just like handed $35,000. Anyways, so as he's Hadley's talking to these officers, uh, Red and Andy have this kind of, they have a little moment where Red's like, Andy, what are you doing? Like, don't take your eyes off of your work. You're going to get in trouble. And so Andy kind of starts working, but then all of a sudden you see Andy starting to walk towards the officers and Red is just like, what are you doing? Like, you are committing suicide just Mm -hmm. doing this, you know? Comes pretty close. Yeah. And so he, so Andy walks up to Hadley and is just like, do you trust your wife? And Hadley's just like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so it turns out that Andy's just trying to help Hadley um, with his tax situation because Hadley's mad that he's going to get taxed because he's getting all this money. And it's a huge, huge risk that Andy's taking to try and help Hadley. But it, to me, is probably one of the biggest points in the movie where it's Andy trying to improve his situation well in and maybe he didn't even expect for him to have so many good things happen because of that moment but i think it's a good starting point for andy to feel better about himself and all that he can do and help in the prison well regardless of if he thought it was going to pave open like a better way of life for him in the prison i i think that this and similar moments where andy is trying to improve life in shawshank I think it's him just trying to feel normal again. All of that stuff comes from his expertise in his past life as a hotshot banker. So he sees he can he can use his expertise. So even if he got taken for a ride, he still gets to hold on to a piece of his former life. He can feel normal again. And I think that's something that kind of repeats as he gets more and more of these improvements. He gets the library going. He gets to do the guy's taxes. You know, all of a sudden he's not in prison anymore. He's doing what he loved to do. And I think that's, we talked a little bit about this in Cool Hand Luke, but Shawshank really nails this, that this movie lives and dies by those tiny, small victories. Because the the reality is unchanged that he is still a convict, but anything that he can do to not only feel more normal, but to also feel like he's making a difference. You know, something that comes out about Andy, I think, is that he enjoys fixing broken things he says it kind of point blank uh in the get busy live and get busy dying speech when he says i would love to just find an old boat 
and fix it up for fishing groups. But you see, he does that. He helps all these guys get their GEDs. He loves building up the library. He won't quit because rather than allow the place to get the best of him and to become like everyone else where he just gets used to the routine, he kind of wants it to do what it's meant to do, which is offer a place where people have to pay for the horrible things they've done, but offer them a chance to be better than that instead of instead of it just being a place that will punish them by sucking the life out of them. Right, and I think that touches on that this movie really talks about morality or moral issues because Andy doesn't really expect any reward for doing any of the things that he does. Like, he truly only wants his life and other people's life to be better. And in this situation of them being in jail, it's hard to do that. Right. But he finds so many ways to make his life and the, those around him better. Um, the library is a huge one for me. He just does this be, and doesn't expect any reward. He writes one letter a week to the state commissions or whatever mm-hmm. to For try and get some money to build up this library. <laughs> Anyways, which ends up helping all these other inmates get their GED because he gets to teach them. And um, the only reason why Andy gets to be successful in this is because he is helping the warden set up a little financial scam. He's got to deal with the devil, yeah. Yeah, and I Andy even admits that he isn't being completely honest with the way he set up this financial scam or laundering money with the warden, but he does say it gives him the opportunity to help uh, the inmates. So to me, that's just an, an indication that in any situation that we have, that there's always good that can be done. And I'm not saying you should go out and help your boss launder money because then it gives you the opportunity to help other people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that maybe there's some situations where we're involved in something that isn't honest. But if we're able to help more people because of that situation, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Right. Really tough stuff to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that 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 this movie talks about that and says a lot about that. And another one is that all of the guards, in in my perspective, all of the guards are the bad guys in this movie, not the inmates. Like, it's the guards being violent. There's some cool guards. Okay, yes, that's true. For the, for the most part, there are. The, the guards are bad. Uh, right, though, like, we're on Andy's side because he's laundering money because Warden Norton is, like, the, one of the skeeziest bad guys in all movie history. He's got that just smirk on his face all the time that you just instantly hate him, but he all at once also looks like a quote-unquote upstanding member of society. Yes. And then, yeah, we talked about Hadley is just a psychopath. He's right. He he's like um he's a lot like Ammon Girth in Schindler's List. The you know one of the chief Nazi antagonists is you know Hadley kind of just got lucky a flip of the coin and he could be just as easily be an inmate, but he just got lucky enough to find a job within an institution that would condone his violent behavior exactly, and so he can make it work for himself. So to me, just seeing that for the most part these inmates. At least the ones we really get to know. Obviously, the sisters, and there's a few other um, people who are involved with that you see the first night of the fresh fish coming in, that they're just taunting these the fresh fish and trying to get one of them to break. Like, that just isn't... That's a horror story. Yeah, like, but for the most part, the inmates that we really get to know, Brooks, Red, a handful of other people, 
they really seem like better guys than most of the guards. And to me, that just says like, there could be a lot of things that our prison system is messing up, Mm. which uh, that could lead and open up a whole can of worms. It just is interesting that 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 this movie talks about basically how imprisonment changes your life forever, even if you are eventually able to get out. Tricky thing, because, you know, we don't know a lot about the inmates in Shawshank. So obviously somebody who commits like a capital offense like murder they forfeit certain rights. So exactly. they shouldn't go to prison just to have an awesome life. Like the purpose is to take something from them that they have taken from somebody else. But yeah, the, like I said, there's that dichotomy between is the purpose of this to just punish people to suck the life out of them or is it to try to reform them? Exactly. And uh, I think the movie, you could even make the case that it says one is right for a certain group of people and another is right for the other group. Exactly, yeah. I think a good snapshot of this comes when... So we get to see Red um, being interviewed by... uh, Looks like a state board to see if he's been rehabilitated. And we get to see it three times. Two times he says the exact same thing to them. That, oh yes, I've been rehabilitated. I'm a changed man. What they want to hear. What they want to hear. And that he gets rejected. And then the last time we get to see this is, I believe it's after Andy's escape. It's a year after Andy's left, yeah. Okay, yeah. I don't remember his exact speech, Mike, do you? It's beautiful. I, I don't have it memorized, but it it does. It breaks all that down. It comes straight from the heart and says, he starts off by debunking the very idea of what rehabilitation means. And he basically says, you know, I of course I feel regret. I would love to talk to my younger self who is just a dumb a dumb kid and I want to tell him the way things really are and I want to stop him but the facts are I can't he's long gone and this husk of an old man is all that's left yep and then basically just says I don't care what you do just let me I I like what he says cuz he says stop wasting my time which is interesting because all he's doing is sitting in prison time is all he has but his interaction with Andy now make that time valuable. This is no longer like, oh great, I can go into the parole hearing in hopes of getting out. He sees it as like, stop wasting what little time I have left. And I I think that just as a good uh, snapshot, like I was saying, of what this movie is really trying to say about prison and what happens. And there is another quote that he says, they send you here for life. That's exactly what they take, at least the best part of or at least the part that matters. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true. An interesting shift that we see in morality in the prison as well is at the beginning of the movie when um, we see the first night of the fresh fish and Hadley comes in and beats this poor man who is broken down and he beats him to death. And we don't find out that he's actually died until the next day. But Andy's just like, what was his name? And I think it's Hayward that says it doesn't matter, like, who are you to even ask that? Yeah, yeah. You're a fresh fish. Keep your mouth shut, you know? And Andy kind of, he kind of stops, but he really genuinely wanted to know this guy's name. And I think that just shows that in such a situation, it's very easy for your morality to be shut off. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's very easy to be peer, peer pressured into just saying, like, no, it doesn't matter. But I think. Andy does just the opposite. 
Yeah, he's he's a man apart. I yeah. I really like. I'll give Tim Robbins a lot of credit for his performance because I like that. Even till the last day, he's in Shawshank. Andy never truly fits in with the rest of the guys. He's friends with them, like you totally buy. He's one of the group, but like every time he tries to say the, "I'm innocent, just like everyone else," don't you know? Like it seems like he's trying way too hard to be like one of the cool guys, and I actually really love that. Yeah. Is I'm curious to know why you think, I mean, we have kind of talked about this, but what are some specific reasons why you feel like this is the best prison movie ever? Best prison movie? Ugh, there's a lot of good prison movies. Um, a part of it is that it's more than a prison movie. That it is, it, it found this way to make prison life be a metaphor for regular life. Mm-hmm. So I like that it elevates itself beyond that. But I also, I like that this movie better than any other has the minutia down. Red gives the speech that prison life is all about routine, and I like that you you get to feel like the lived-in state of the world, like you eventually kind of come to feel, you eventually come to fall into those rhythms yourself, and you get how life goes on. The first the first day is the, the thing that really impresses me the most, because similar to your point about how the movie makes you feel all the emotions very genuinely, I think the movie really makes you feel that first day and night. I love when Andy comes into the yard. You've got all the prisoners hooting and hollering, trying to intimidate him. You, everything about that is designed to completely squash all hope right away. You have all the inmates. You have the guards on the tower with the guns. And I love that shot from Andy's point of view as he walks in and he looks up and the the prison just looks like this domineering, like, gothic castle that's swallowing him up. Right. And you get the speech from the warden that instantly sets him up as like the biggest scumbag in the universe. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. The delousing, everything marching you in naked. Like you just feel all of that by the time, like the bars slam shut before reds even said like, Oh, you know, when the bars slam is when you finally feel it, you've already felt it. And then it just gets worse because that's when the, the fresh fish cat calling starts and, Poor fat ass gets beat. I, I feel bad that that's his character's name. <laughs> he never gets a real name. But even that scene to go along with my reading of Shawshank Redemption as a fairy tale, when that shot comes up behind Red and you see the cells across the way and you start to see the other inmates kind of emerge from the shadows, that's that's a shot like right out of the scary woods in Snow White. Like this thing that looks totally different in the daytime is now quiet and sinister. So yeah, like all that's just the first day, but it instantly sucks you in. But you you get into the routine. You very much understand how everyone could become like Red and the other inmates that you could get used to it. Um, but it also, you know, you've got Andy to show you how you could break out of that. You don't have to go along with the program. You can find a meaningful way to do that. And I also like that Andy has a purpose for doing that. Yeah. Like we talked about with Cool Hand Luke, his purpose to rebel is just for it. Andy clings to his innocence, to his hope, and decides he's just going to make the best out of his situation because he really does feel to a degree that he deserves to be there. He admits he didn't actually like pull the trigger and kill his wife, but he admits he was cold, distant. He did not love her the way she deserved, and he is responsible for her death. So in a way, I think he feels that his time in Shawshank is justified. Yeah. To the point that, like, I think he goes back and forth on really wanting to escape. 
Like, he constantly has the tunnel going, but I get the feeling towards the end that he's had the tunnel duck for quite a while, but just hasn't used it. I mean, he he does have to wait for the perfect opportunity to go anyways, just because he knows he's going to have to break open the pipe or whatever, you know? Right, that's just a thunderstorm. But, sure. Yeah, but yeah, like it, and we don't ever know how long he waits. But yeah, it does kind of seem like there's some time elapsed between when he's like ready to go and when he actually leaves. Yeah, he has he has like a self-inflicted life sentence on himself, and a, right. Tommy's death is what kind of kicks it off and says like I've suffered enough. It's time for me to move on with my life. So let's let's talk about Tommy and um, the authority figures that are involved with Tommy's death because I think. That is a uh, authority figures is kind of a social issue that's still relevant. Sure. So we'll always have them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably know this, but a little backstory. Tommy comes in. He's this young guy who everybody Red says everybody instantly loves him. Like he's just like a a funny guy that um, Andy takes under his wing to help him get his GED, which he does get. Anyways, throughout. The time of knowing Tommy, it comes out that Tommy heard the confession of the actual killer of Andy's wife and lover. So um, Andy takes this information to the warden and the warden doesn't even give Andy the chance to talk about this, really. Like he just shoves him aside like the warden knows what Andy has done to help him get where he is financially. like. Without Andy, the warden would not have been able to launder all that money. Mm -hmm. And so he knows that if Andy's innocence gets proven, that either A, Andy's going to come out and say that the, the warden is doing all these awful things, or that he just won't even be able to continue all those things for him. Yeah. You know? Andy does pinky promise he wouldn't say anything. That's but it true. Would, but it would stop. Yeah. Anyways, so so the warden knows that Andy's not going to give this up. So he knows that Tommy's the one that's heard his confession. So he would be the one that would be able to testify in court saying, yes, I heard so-and-so give this confession to kill Andy's wife and lover. So Andy would be set free. And so Tommy gets taken out to the yard and the warden comes up to him and is just like, would you be willing to testify in court and all these things? And of course, Tommy's like, yes, of course, I just give me the opportunity and I will. And which is exactly what the warden didn't want to hear. And so we see this awful scene of Hadley shooting Tommy because they know that the information that he has could set Andy free. And to me, that just is interesting that this authority figure who supposedly is i mean he's there the warden is there to help keep everybody in line and stuff but he's there to essentially try and help the inmates but he doesn't give them the opportunity to help themselves at all yeah i mean i feel like he that should be his job but very clearly from the outset he is just on a power trip exactly and what kind of a situation does that build for the inmates like of course they're all there for a reason because they've been proven guilty of a crime that they've committed or maybe they didn't we don't know but everyone in there is innocent exactly but it just is interesting to me that um while i do believe that people should pay for the the actions that they've committed but 
why do we have to make them not be able to continue their life normally after they've paid for those actions, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyways, I didn't mean to get all political and whatever, but (laughs) you have an idea of how the reformatory system should work. And I'm kind of with you. Yeah. Anyways, so I think Shawshank uh, gives a good opportunity for us to maybe just even think about how we see people who have been incarcerated when they've had their time in jail and they get um, to leave, that how we treat them as a society, because it is very obvious in we get to see Brooks and Red in society for their short time before Brooks kills himself and before Red leaves normal society to go find Andy in the Pacific. But it's just an interesting thing to see how they get treated. It's not like that they're treated badly, but they're kind of treated as outcasts somewhat. They don't really get the chance to really live after they've done their time. Sometimes to me, it feels like it's even less about like how those guys were treated and more of just the reality of their situation because they have been outside the world for 40 years. And how do you, how do you step right back into something that you have no frame of reference for? That's like, that's like getting a new job and just being expected to go full swing into everything on your first day. Right. Yeah. That was something I found interesting. Your first viewing is you were very shaken up about what the movie said about the criminal justice system. And I've felt really stupid because I've never thought a lot about the movie in that terms. I've always gravitated a lot more towards what that's a metaphor for. I've always thought of it more of in the in the Christian sense, like what is what is guilt? How do we all prove our innocence? What do we have to pay for? And when can we when and how do we achieve forgiveness? And so I've always I've always liked that element of the movie a lot more. I like Andy's speech about the Pacific having no memory, that his his dream is to escape to a place where the past is irrelevant. There's only making the future better. Yeah. And um, I feel like another part of the what makes this movie so wonderful is that there's tiny pieces of information that um, Andy gives to Red to set up this life for the two of them after. Because at this point, Andy knows that he's going to escape. And he has had this friendship or he's him and Red have created this friendship that he appreciates and that he wants to keep. So this is, he gives Red these tiny little pieces of information, um, just piece by piece. So then once Red gets out that he can, that they can go live their life. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's, it's, um, I think it does feed into that fairy tale type story because really in any real world situation would that ever work? Probably not. Oh no. The, the real world situation is that Tommy is killed and nothing is investigated and Andy rots for the rest of his life. It's it's the cool hand Luke. Ending. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, here here we we get a very literal Red and Andy lived on the most beautiful beach I've ever seen and they lived happily ever after. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I agree. Uh cuz we we have movies that take a more cynical, probably more realistic look at things, but you know, I I don't think that very many people are going to say Cool Hand Luke is a better movie than Shawshank. And we could debate that on grounds of cinematography, performance, like all all of the cinematic forms. But Shawshank is a movie that 
speaks to people more, I would say. And, you know, you can write that off as like, oh, it just has mainstream appeal, but it has mainstream appeal for a reason. We've needed fairy tales for a long time, so it only makes sense that a movie like this would come to be beloved. Again, we may have been completely off base. Maybe you disagree, think Shawshank Redemption isn't that great. Maybe Cool Hand Luke is much better than we gave it credit for. The choice is now up to all of you listeners, so make sure to go to cinemas.com. Go to the episode 14 post to find our listener poll. On our next show in two weeks, we will read the results and decide whether or not these movies really are must-sees or not. But Amanda, thanks a ton for coming all the way out here. You're so welcome. I'm so happy to be here and talk about one of my new favorite movies. I'm really glad that you found a new favorite movie. (laughs) And Cool Hand Luke. I don't want to push Cool (laughs) Cool Hand Luke off, but... You gave it a try. That's that's what's important. That's right. Gave it a shot. Thank you for coming. Thanks to everybody who's listening. We really appreciate it. We hope to have you again in two weeks for our next episode on June 19th in anticipation of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. We are going to be fighting off extinction by discussing Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park and the 1933 classic King Kong with a surprise co-host. So it's going to be a great dinosaur-laden episode. So we hope to have you back in two weeks for that show. Thank you again so much for listening to this one, and we hope to hear your thoughts on these movies. So until next time, shutting it off here, boss? Yeah, shut it off now, Mike. (laughs) 